Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer. I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Programme here at the London School of Economics. And I'd like to welcome you all to our event tonight on the Latin American left. It's an event sponsored both by the Ralph Miliband Programme and also by LSE's Latin America and Caribbean Studies Centre. And we're going to be focusing on developments in the Latin American left more generally, but with a special cognizance, I think, of two very recent and important developments. First of all, just a week ago, we saw the re-election, albeit narrowly, of President Lula in Brazil. And a few months earlier, we saw the rejection of the constitutional reforms that the new progressive government in Chile had only recently put forward. And to speak about those and other developments, I'm joined by an absolute first-rate panel. Here on the um, stage with me is Professor Claudia Heiss. She's the head of political science at the Institute of Public Administration at the University of Chile, and she's no mean expert on the matter of the Chilean constitution, Chilean politics and constitutions more generally. I counted, I think, 32 articles on these subjects just in the last decade. Uh, she was also sitting on the technical commission which advised about the constitution, so she's got an insider's view as well as a scholar's view. Joining us from Sao Paulo is Professor Andre Singer, who's Professor of uh, political science at the University of Sao Paulo. And he too has written a significant number of important books about political and social change in Brazil, about the phenomenon of the Lula presidency more particularly. But he also has done other things. He's been the, um, I believe he's been the managing editor of Brazil's largest newspaper. And not least, he was Lula's spokesperson during his first period in the presidency. So I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome uh, both of our speakers here today. They're, they're each going to speak for about 15 minutes and then there's going to be a, a short period of chair-led discussion. That means I get to ask them a couple of questions and then we're going to hand it over to you and there should be a lot of time for uh, questions and discussion from the audience. I should just make the point so everyone's aware of it, that we have a, a bifurcated audience. We've got the people who you can see around you in the auditorium here. We've also got a significant number of people um, online. So we're gonna take questions um, from both those constituents. But before I turn to our speakers, and I think I'll start with um, Professor Singer and then turn to um, Professor Heiss. Can I just ask you to join me in welcoming our speakers, Professor Andre Singer and Professor Claudia Heiss. Uh, good evening to all in London. I would like to express my gratitude for the invitation of the London School of Economics by Professor Robin Archer and Chris Beek. I would like also to greet Professor Claudia Heiss, my colleague at this seminar. I will read some brief notes about the subject that was suggested for our debate. Last October's elections in the midst of a gloomy global picture and rapid transformations in the class struggle dramatically updated the problem of democracy in Brazil. On one hand, a kind of concertation brought together 
a wide spectrum of fractions to take former metallurgical leader Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva to the Planalto Palace for the third time. Now with the aim of avoiding authoritarianism. On the other hand, however, almost half of the electorate led by generals and rural entrepreneurs, followed by service and civil construction capitalists, by a conservative middle class, by evangelical fundamentalist militancy, and even modest income workers preferred the autocratic personalism of Jair Messias Bolsonaro. In the end, the resistance of the poor, believing that Lula will help them to get out of their economic suffocation, overcame the authoritarian amount, causing a sigh of relief that traveled the planet. On the night of October 30, Lula was finally victorious by 51% to 49% for Bolsonaro. Before, however, what we could call a agro-military religious meteor, whose project is to transform Brazil into a large soy and chicken farm, according to the synthesis of the economist José Luis Oreiro, appeared at full speed at the end of the first round on October 2nd. It had the strength to elect the largest benches in Congress, leaving the right strong enough to block any structural advances. Despite having a mandate that was almost always rejected in the polls, Bolsonaro saw candidates he supported reach the governorships of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, also associating himself with the winner in Minas Gerais, the three most rich states in the Brazilian Federation. In the next step, the military associated with Bolsonaro accepted the defeat and the fascist biased autocratism was stagnated one step closer to establishing midnight in the sky of Portuguese America. Now, Lula will need to walk the crooked path to actually make the dawn, dodging the pressure for austerity and the obscurantist tendencies that insist on persisting in our society. It is important to understand some features of the way that led to the night of October 30. Forced to eat bones from the arrival of the coronavirus on, the poor heard Lula promise in April 2021, when he regained his right to be a candidate, that the stake with beer would land on the tables if he was elected. Red meat consumption had fallen to the lowest level since 1996. And from survey to survey, nearly half of the respondents made up mainly of low-income voters, reiterated their intention to relocate the former president 
to the residential area of Alvorada Palace in Brazil. The intention to vote for the Workers' Party re-candidate remained stable around 48% for incredible 18 months, despite the daily confusion created by the incumbent president until at 8.40 p.m. of the, that 10th Sunday when the president of the Superior Electoral Court proclaimed the result. Lula had obtained 60 million votes, Bolsonaro 58. Lula built a broad scheme of alliances for the election. The official coalition for Lula had nine parties, but the real one was larger. From the leftist Socialism and Freedom Party to the centrist right Social Democratic Party, he built an ad hoc front. This articulation, especially in the second round, resulted in a patchwork of class fractions, from banks to what was left of modern industry, from business environmental organizations to representatives of women, Blacks, Indian, and LGBT, from unions to landless and homeless movements, from Catholic priests to not fundamentalist pastors. The biggest symbol of the open fan was the choice of the deputy, a traditional member of the Brazilian Social Democ Democracy Party, Geraldo Alckmin, now affiliated to the Socialist Brazilian Party, despite the notorious center-right positions he always held. Unlike the Lula arc, which always floated at the top of the polls, Bolsonaro slowly rose from 22% in December 2021. It reached from point to point to 45 in October 2022. Pushed by a kind of parallel Brazil operating on social networks and composed of ox, Bible, and bullets. Aboard a business cycle designed to favor him, the chief executive recovered a significant part of the support obtained in 2018, when in the second round he received 55% of the valid votes. Overcoming resistance created by the chaotic and aggressive style of administration, especially during the pandemic, he stagnated only six percentage points before recovering all he had in 2018. It's useful to say that maybe those 6% were shielded by the bourgeois center, which acted as the balance sheet represented by Senator Simone Tebet from the centrist Brazilian democratic movement. In the light of the summary that I have tried to present here, my answer to the question whether Latin America is experiencing a new Pink wave is negative. Seen from the Brazilian angle, there is a very broad democratic coalition to save democracy against a broad coalition too that voted for autocratism with a fascist bias. The victorious democratic alliance, which goes from the left to the center right, will now have to negotiate the material conditions to respond to the country's social problems in order to isolate the obscurantist tendencies 
that insists on persisting here. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I want to start by thanking the Ralph Milliman program at LSE for this invitation, uh, Professor Robin Archer and the PhD candidate Christopher Pick. And it's a pleasure also to share the panel uh, with Professor Andre Singer and all the staff, thanks to all the staff that makes this possible and to all of you who, who came in this rainy day. I'm very happy to participate in this program that celebrates Ralph Milliman's contribution to social thought. And I wanted to start by, by saying that um, this, uh, and it's very good to feel that we have a possibility of understanding the work, our work as social scientists or as political theorists, also as a form of a civic activity, not as a technocratic, neutral, essentially non-political or even sometimes anti-political knowledge. Uh, and I think the role of public intellectuals is not incompatible with that of a professional scholar. And I think spaces like this contribute to resist competitive, ultra-specialized and index-obsessed contemporary academia that produces a knowledge that is often gated behind pain walls. And I think, unfortunately, the same occurs with quality mass media, which is increasingly reserved for a small elite and uh, while fake news are uh, proliferating on social networks and impover impoverishing uh, public debate. So I hope my Spanish doesn't impede to communicate this enthusiasm that I have to talk about these things in this very uh, respected place. And uh, I want to make three points if I have the time, otherwise I'll skip the third. And the first is uh, the bittersweet uh, feeling that I have with this pink tide. It's not like the first one we had in the 2000s in Latin America. We don't have the same uh, hope. Uh, second is a deeper problem that I see with political mediation mechanisms. Political mediation mechanisms are not working, not only in Latin America. I think in the world we are seeing a crisis of representation, a crisis of collective uh, action and aggregation of preferences in a democratic and pluralistic way. I think this is a big problem for democracy. And in the third time, if I have, if I have not uh, talked too much, I will uh, say more specific things about the recent Chilean history and how I think it fits into this frame. So my first bittersweet uh, sense of the pink tide is, um, of course, I'm happy that Bolsonaro and Jose Antonio Cas lost the presidential election. These were two very uh, nefarious candidates, uh, not only because they were right-wingers, also because of that, but more importantly, because I think they, were, they are threats to human rights to the preservation of the planet and to pluralism and to democracy. So I think uh, this is not, I'm not happy because it, it left way for the pink tide, but because I think they were bad for, for democracy in general, left and right. And as I said, the previous uh, pink tide in the 2000s coincided with a boom of the commodities that uh, are allowed some left-wing governments in Latin America to really change uh, people's lives through the redistributive policies. I think that was clearly the case in, in, uh, in Brazil. Chile is a little different. We did not build uh, anything looking like a, a welfare state or anything like that, or, but, but we did have uh, direct transferences that uh, made people's lives better, poor people particularly. But, uh, but in many cases, structural inequality and concentration of wealth remained. And in, in other cases, the concentration of power of the left uh, of the left-wing governments led to authoritarian regimes that uh, were detrimental to 
both to politics, to political freedom, and 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 also to to the economy of these countries. They led they led to economic crisis. So so today today we are seeing the main economies of the rate of the region uh, um, governed by uh, by the left in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, and Mexico. There are left wing governments. Also, we have leftist governments in Peru and Honduras. Although in those cases there is no clear um, left political party structure to sustain these governments. And also there we have non-pluralist left-wing governments in Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. So I think, I think what is worrisome uh, becomes clear when we focus on the electorate rather than the elected, on the voters rather than the people who won the elections, right? And we don't see in, in, in general, of course, there are, there's great variation, but I think in general, we are not seeing active citizenship. We are not seeing strong left-wing political parties. On the contrary, political parties of the left are disappearing. Um, and we don't see organized labor unions. Uh, in, in many of these countries, union, unions are weaker and weaker. And I think that's what uh, is a cause for concern. So what we see, I think, is rather first, a very strong anti-incumbent vote. Second, an acceleration of political times that is worrisome. Third, the idea of lesser evil coalitions. And fourth, a uh, tendency to political fragmentation and polarization. So what I mean by an anti-incumbent vote, I think the left side in this case is very much the consequence of a swing effect. So people just rejected what they had before. And in that sense, it's a punishment of all ruling parties, but that comes together with little tolerance for the new ones. It's not a, a super supportive uh, vote. It's just, we don't like this. Let's see what the others have to offer. And that means that um, the, the support is weak for the new governments and their popularity um, uh, goes down very quickly. In Chile, the, the constitution the Constitutional Convention, for example, you know, we had a, a recent constitution making process that failed. Uh, the, the, the constitutional proposal was rejected by 62% of the, of the voters. And I think part of that rejection vote is due to the fact that the Constitutional Convention became rapidly the establishment. So people voted against the constitution in place in the entry plebiscite in 2020, in October 2020, 78% of the people say we don't want this constitution anymore. But then two years later, 62% said we don't want this other either. We neither. No, we also don't like this one. Because the people that made that constitution, who were perceived as outsiders in the beginning when they were elected, in those two years became the establishment, became the political elites presenting this text to the people. Um, so I would say a little bit more about that. The, regarding the acceleration of political times, uh, we see shorter and shorter honeymoons for new rulers. Boric, the, the current leftist president in Chile, started with, uh, with more than 50% support in March in polls. So polls are different than elections. He got 56% he got uh, of the vote with a voluntary vote. So it's more complicated because only 56% of the electorate voted. Uh, and, uh, and his support is around 30% today. The same for Pedro Castillo in Peru. Uh, the government in Argentina last year had a very poor performance in the legislative elections in November 2021. The third, the third point about lesser evil is, of course, Lula and Boric were not elected by strong supporters. They were elected by anyone who didn't want the extreme right wing to make it to power. 
So one has to wonder what would have happened if the opponent was a centrist. So I don't think we should read this broad support for Lula as for Bolsonaro, when in the case of Lula is more, more clear because he was in coalition with, uh, with his former opponents of the, of the center. But in the, in the Boric case, I think uh, he, did, he did not win with the support of that coalition, but he did win with the support of the voters of the center left. And even of the center, maybe even some center right people voted for, for Boric, just so uh, extreme position like caste did not make it. And the, the, the problem of political fragmentation in Chile, we have, uh, we used to have a very stable political party system that is super fragmented today. We have 20 parties in the Chamber of the Deputies now. And more and more parties are forming as we speak. There's now two, the, the former Christian democracy, which almost has no voters, is now divided in three parties. So, and the elites are super polarized. The electorate, that's why I say, I think we need to focus on the electorate because uh, it's not the same. Well, we'll see how they perform electorally, but the elites are clearly in Chile more polarized than the electorates. Uh, so this bittersweet uh, pink tide, means that we have governments without the political and the parliamentary support required to produce structural transformations. In Chile, for example, uh, we are now seeing very strong obstacles to the constitution-making process, which was supposed to continue. And, uh, and there's, there's a enormous legislative difficulty to pass pension and tax reform because the right has the majority in Congress. And in many of, all, um, of these countries which have left-wing governments, we have a left-wing president, but not a left-wing Congress, so uh, divided government and uh, the impossibility to perform will probably create disappointment and the results will be status quo and, and maybe this will mean a new right wing uh, tide in the next round, in the next election. So a swing to the right. And the second point that I wanted to make about the deep crisis of political representation First, we are clearly before a very deep anti-party sentiment, anti-political party. And collective action is mostly based on, uh, on individual interests, on some kind of collective uh, action around uh, specific uh, issues, single issue, uh, like education, pensions, but not programmatic platforms. And, um, and there are no collective projects or visions of society or things like that debated in the public, in the public realm. In Chile, I think debt, private debt is a big issue. I think in the protests of, 2000, uh, of the last decade, because the social outburst of 2019 did not come out of nowhere. We had 10 years at least, actually since 2006 and the high school student protest, we've seen the very strong social mobilization in the streets, while voters, a voter turnout went down and down, people stopped voting and started marching. And uh, those social movements were not uh, a proposal, a, a, pro, a, so, a social project proposal, were in some cases a reaction to neoliberalism on ideological grounds, in other cases, a reaction to debt, to private debt, because people in Chile, because there's no welfare, not, not public network, people, uh, so the, our country has very uh, solid macroeconomic uh, indexes, standards. We have no public debt because all the debt is absorbed by families to pay for current things, for education, for health, for food, for clothing. So people spend 75% of their salaries paying debts. So, so we, we, we live in what we call a bicycle. 
No, and that's been the model since the return to democracy, 75% of private debt. So um, there's a clear divide that is growing of us against them. This is typical of all the studies of populism, the good people who are not in power against the bad people who are in power. And this is, of course, fed by corruption scandals like used in Brazil, Navajato, and all the uh, corruption scandals in Brazil was very big. In Chile, we have you know, a smaller scale for all these things. We're a smaller country, but we had our own uh, big political scandals for uh, campaign funding in 2016, 2015 and 16, that is still uh, damaging politics. And then social movements, as I said, since 2006, and particularly since the student movement of 2011, overflew institutions. People went to the street, often for single issues, except for 2019, when the sentence was dignity. But then what does dignity mean? What, what do you want? No? So I think the great problem we have now, and that's why I, 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 talk, I call about the problem of mediation and the pro problem of representation. How can you know what people want? How, how can you um, uh, interpret what dignity means? Everybody interprets dignity as what they want, right? So we have a great problem of political mediation. President Gabriel Boric, I, I think, said it in a very nice way in the in September's uh, United Nations General Assembly, Boric said, representing discomfort is much easier than producing solutions. Many times we easily confuse the successes we can have as a spokesperson for citizens' anger with our real capacity to be builders of better futures. Democracy must be humble. So he acknowledged that what he was represented was a discontent, but it's much more difficult to offer an alternative to this discontent or unhappy people, right? So we have this uh, overwhelming presence of citizens as consumers, as consumers of politics, as judges, as controlling, a people controlling. No, this is what uh, Piero Sambalon has called a counter-democracy, a, demo a negative democracy, but not a constructor of a common destiny. This negative side is not, is not bad. It's also necessary for democracy. You need a checking power, right? You need to check power, but you also need to propose alternatives, right? And, and so we have a destituent people. We saw the destituent power of the people in the 2020 plebiscite with 78%, that's very unusual, 78% of the people voted for the, for the constitution-making process, for a democratic constitution-making process. But we did not have the same force for a constituent movement. When people had to vote for constitution members to make the constitution, the turnout, the voter turnout went down from 51% to 43%. A lot less people voted to elect the representatives. And then, uh, and then we have the 62% rejection, which is also a destituent vote. It's saying, no, I don't like that, right? So it's easier to say, I don't like that than to say, I think this is the way. Um, so as I said, we have problems reading the estallido, the outburst and its demand for dignity, as well as the September 4, 2022 rejection vote. And the great question is, who are the people? What are they rebelling against? What do they ask for? What does dignity mean? And with regard to that, I want to make, to, to, to give four, four, at least four, um, four elements of what, of what the answer may be, right? First of all, there is not one people. There's not one voice of the people. That it's very hard to tell this to politicians and to, and to students and to people in general. There's an heterogeneity of demands, of actors. Some people march because they want socialism. Some people march because they want more access to consumption. 
but there's a convergence in a demand for a more robust welfare, I think, in Chile. I think dignity clearly has a meaning of a redistributive demand. Uh, there's a very strong anti-elite, this is my second point. In the, in the, in the social adverse, there's a clear message of uh, anti-institutions and anti-elite sentiment, which is very worrisome because you need political parties and you need you know, elites and institutions. Um, and this, I think, is, creates uh, the ground for populism and for simple answers that can be damaging to democracy. In the third place, I think, as I, as I suggested before, there's a clear message of people want to stop the abuses of the market, the indebtedness, and what has, some have called the politicization of inequality. Inequality is not new in Chile. We are super unequal. We are, we are one of the most unequal countries in the world. But but this inequality became politicized. People tolerated inequality much better before than now. So today we have a politicization of inequality that demands a more state intervention and a more um, social state and a redistributive demand. And the fourth point is that I think we saw in the outburst a very strong demand for recognition, for recognition of excluded peoples. Uh, particularly the uh, native peoples, origin, uh, indigenous peoples, um, gender parity. Gender parity in the Constitutional Convention was historic. Until 2018, our Congress had 13% women. So you would not believe how backwards we're coming from. This is a very big leap. Uh, so gender was not a, uh, well, there's other things that I could say about that. We only legalized divorce in 2004 in Chile. There was no law of divorce. And abortion was illegal until 2017, a few years ago, under any circumstances, even the death of the mother or, or in viability, fetus inviability. So the doctor had to let the mother die because that was the law, if, if the, there was an incompatibility. So now we passed a very, very restrictive uh, abortion law. And I think that has a lot to do with the absence of women in, in public power positions. And, um, also, I think sex and gender minorities, migrants, people with disabilities, people deprived of liberty, all of this came out in the constitutional debates. And now we have a backlash and it's, 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 uh, it's being left behind, it's being left aside. And even some on the left are blaming the recognition demands for the failure of the constitution making process. So some people are saying, forget about recognition demands, let's focus on redistributive demands because they're one against the other. Uh, it, that's a position I don't, I don't believe, I don't share. So where lies the voice of the people before this contradiction between the 2020 plebiscite and the 2022 rejection of the constitutional proposal? Today, Chileans recur to, of course, elections. So the right now is saying, you see, 62% said they don't want this constitution because they trust political parties, they trust us, or they are right-wingers and they want the constitution to remain. So they're saying that many people are saying that today, and it's making very difficult political negotiate, negotiation today in Congress where, where, where it is uh, now. So may, some people think this, this election, this last play side means that people prefer to maintain the status quo, contradicting the 2020 plebiscite. But also people are citing the social movements and saying the voice of the people is in the, in the street, right, in the, in the graffitis. Uh, and this uh, discontent, this malaise. Also, uh, arguments are given uh, uh, using polls. Polls are every day saying, you know, this is what people want, what is, what's in polls. 
And of course, there now political scientists are saying, oh, people, the convention, the constitutional convention did not pay attention to the median voter. So now the median voter is to blame for everything. That's the voice of the people. The convention was to the left of the median voter, and that's the problem. So where is the voice of the people? In the elections, in social movements, in the streets, in polls, in the median voter? It's complicated. So you, we cannot simplify it. And I think political, a legitimate political decision can only be attained through pluralistic, democratic, citizen deliberation. And this requires functioning and legitimate institutions such as political parties, Congress, the judiciary. Uh, in the absence of this, impatience is leading attempts to escape traditional politics. And now the political system is offering shortcuts. No, let's have experts do the constitution because experts know better and they are neutral. Or let's have randomized deliberative publics that do not represent organized interests. No, because the individual is is, is better than collective judgment. No, it's not contaminated by power politics. So these proposals are today in the table to try to overcome this problem we have in Chile, but I'm afraid there are no such shortcuts. Uh, I think they only weaken democracy. And I think we have to stick with politics as usual and try to see what we can do to, to, to improve political parties and to, to, to have better citizen deliberation and more involvement of citizens in politics. So I'll skip the Chilean part and we can talk more about that in the, in the Q&A. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Thank you both very much to our two speakers. As I said, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions myself now. I'm going to ask the same type of question to both of you. I guess I'll, I'll start with Andre and then turn to you, Claudia. Um, we've framed this discussion as being about a pink wave in Latin America. And of course, that's alluding to a period a decade or more ago when there was another supposed pink wave. And, and really, the, the question is, both of you have emphasised that the electoral forces that have brought these presidential results were extremely broad democratic coalitions that stretched way beyond the centre and indeed into the right. So they don't even sound like, you know, French people would talk about the popular front after the, in the 1930s. They don't sound left-wing in that sense. Clearly there's a left-wing figurehead. But I just want to ask you both to reflect on in what sense is there a pink wave or is it really just that the dire nature of the situation has brought together this extremely broad defence of democracy coalition? So if I could just start with Professor Singham. Thank you, Professor Archer, for the question. Uh, very interesting also, the exposition by my colleague, Claudia Haas. Uh, I think that Claudia and, and I uh, agree uh, on the, the most important answer of the question. And I would say that if you look at the results in Chile, Colombia, and Brazil, there is a pink tide because uh, the, the, the left won the, the three elections by a, a margin, very uh, not very large one, but they won. So there is a kind of pink tide, yes. But what I, I think that Claudia tried to stress, and 
I myself did the same, is that the situation changed completely uh, of uh, what it was uh, around the first pink tide. That is, in the first pink tide, we were very optimistic about what, for the first time, because in Brazil was the first time that uh, a left uh, a left party was elected. In Chile was not the first time, obviously, but in Brazil was the first time. And in Colombia now, I think is the first time. But uh, at that time, uh, we were very optimistic around the social improvements we could do. Some of them were done, some of them were not done, but this is another discussion. Anyway, that was the question. What was, uh, it, it was a kind of uh, left program, more reformistic, less reformistic, not revolutionary, but anyway, reformistic, yes. Um, and now the question is that we are very scared about uh, this autocratic, what I call autocratism with fascist bias. Uh, it's a, a kind of concept that I'm trying to, to, to build. Uh, we, I think that uh, what I heard from Claude, I don't know very well what's happening in Chile nowadays, but what I heard from, from Claude is, is not exactly, but it's similar of what we, we feel here in Brazil. We are very scared. So it's a kind, I think it's a defensive, uh, a defensive situation in which, in which there is, I think, Professor Asher, you are right, there is a singularity that in, in the three cases, uh, the leadership of this front is from the left. So the left is in the, in the middle of the, the hurricane. Obviously, it, it, it's very important for us what, what the, those governments are capable of doing. But the question is, um, is that, uh, I think I will repeat, it's a defensive movement, I think. And I would just would like to, to add from what I heard from Claudia, the economic aspect of the discussion. Because I think that uh, we are faced now with challenges, uh, as I tried to point very briefly in my exposition, from a pressure from, uh, let's say, the austerity tendency that we are seeing everywhere. And uh, as, as I see from the global picture, this is going to get harsh. And uh, I think that this is uh, very bad because in Brazil, I, I don't know about Chile, but in Brazil, the social problem is crucial. This has to be, I, I wouldn't say solved because it, it would be very, very optimistic, but uh, it has to be improved. The social situation has to be improved and that demands money, demands budget. And so, I think that we are faced now with a very uh, difficult problem because people are expecting results. And uh, the economic situation in Brazil is, is, is not good from a decade now. So uh, we, we are really faced with, with problems that I think we should discuss a little bit. I don't know if I could answer, but I, I try to give more elements for us to think together. Thank you. Thanks. So really the same question to you. So Boric did not win with the support of broad coalition, but he built a broad coalition immediately. He brought in the government, the, what, is called, what is called now the democratic socialism. But it's important to understand that the outburst and all we are facing now comes from 
um, many years of center-left governments. We've had, we had 20 years of center-left governments since the return to democracy. In 1990, the first president was a Christian Democrat in alliance with the left. We had Patricio Elwin, Eduardo Frey, uh, Ricardo Lagos, M Michelle Bachelet. We had four left-wing governments that did not make any structural, not any, but did not make uh, important structural reforms to the economic model. Why? Partly because they were a broad coalition and parts of the coalition did not want to, but also partly because of the constitution. The constitution, the 1980 constitution was built to preserve what the dictatorship called in, our, in a sort of strange way, the subsidiary state. What we have a subsidiary state, subsidiarity in Europe is usually understood as protecting uh, civil society from the state. In Chile is different. It's understood as protecting the market from the state. So it's, in Chile, subsidiarity means the primacy of the market. And so we have for-profit health uh, healthcare provision that makes profit with public funding. And we have for-profit education with public funding. So we have a transference from the poor to the rich for profit. So this model, uh, I think, is really something that most Chileans are against because this is part of what is perceived as abuse, abuses of the, of the market because people make schools, they choose their students, they, 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 uh, they, they're independent from any public oversight and they get public funding for these schools, no? And they can take, and they don't, they, they, so this was part of what triggered the, uh, the student move, uh, protest in 2006. These were kids 14, 15 years old, a, a little bigger than, than Benjamin here, the Benjamin. And they were, you know, sc school students in uniform. This was called the Penguin Revolution because uh, the uniforms are like penguins, uh, dark, dark blue and white. So the Penguin Revolution was high school students closing their schools and demanding the, the end of for-profit um, uh, school with public funding. This was not done by the political system, by center-left governments in many years. There's, there's uh, uh, political scientists who have studied this. Jennifer Priebel, for instance, has studied a lot about Chile, and she has written how come, you know, so-called center-left governments did not do center-left policies in all those years. So people start, st stopped believing in politics and started marching. But this is also, this is not only because of the broadness of the coalition, it's also because of political enclaves. We have a very, uh, uh, we did not finish democratizing in 1990. We had appointed senators until 2005. We had an electoral system that completely distorted preferences until 2015. So we've had many uh, dictatorial enclaves that, were supposed to be overcome with the, this constitution-making process. The right said, this is a bad constitution, so let's have a new one, one that will unite us and not divide us, That's like this one, and let's refuse this constitutional proposal in 2022 and have a new negotiation. But now they're putting a lot of problems because now we are seeing the real economic interest. Now the pension fund uh, companies and the private health companies are campaigning against political change. They're, openly doing political campaigns. These two institutions, which are now the, ma the main goal of reform to change health and to change pensions, which are privatized and protected from legal reform by these uh, dictatorial institutions. Okay, thanks. Listen, I'm just gonna ask one more question and then we open it up to the floor. Again, it, it might be that you want to answer this in slightly different ways, but starting with you, Andre, the, the theme I want to ask about is the effect of generational change. 
I mean, these are both countries which, you know, for older, older citizens, there was a lived memory of profound dictatorship and authoritarian rule. And yet many younger citizens must have no recollection of that at all. Now, we know in, in completely different environments that that sort of long generational change can have political effects. You know, in India, for example, the people that led the independence from colonisation ruled for 40 years or so and then started to fall away. Perhaps something similar is happening in South Africa. They're different examples, but they're examples of the importance of this long generational change. So I was wondering, starting with you, Andre, I mean, how are we to understand the embrace of someone like Bolsonaro and what is the importance of generational change in understanding it? Uh, very good question. I think that uh, Brazil is a country, this is wide known here, is a country with a uh, small memory of itself. So what, what is past is past. Uh, it's not very, very important. I think it's very different from Chile, uh, which is, it's, uh, has a different political culture. Um, so the problems of Brazil are more, more immediate problems. And the, the, as, as Claudia said, the, the electorate is reacting to their immediate problems, which are very big in Brazil, because we have a, a big uh, quantity of poor people who is uh, now uh, suffocated, as I, as I said in my exposition. But there is a, a, a symptom very worrying symptom about this generation, uh, generational problem that you mentioned, Professor Asher, is that uh, Bolsonaro is, is uh, more or less trying to get back to dictatorship and to the old dictatorship. Nobody knows this very clearly. If you look at the, you know, at the big, big picture of the electorate, it's not, not said, but it's, it's, uh, it's a fact. Uh, Bolsonaro, it's a former military man, and uh, he was a captain, and, and he was formed by, by the dictatorship, and he likes the dictatorship. He says that all the time. He, he doesn't hide that. So, uh, and he's trying to, to make, uh, his movement uh, is, uh, has new aspects, which makes, makes it um, uh, more or less like Trumpism. So it has nothing to do with old kind of, uh, of military movements. But in some aspects, he, he's trying to, uh, to uh, revive that situation that we had before 64, 1964. But uh, I would say that this is important for the specialists and for the people who are studying uh, the situation. For you know, uh, big parts of the electorate, it's not a present thing. The problem is uh, how to solve uh, the social problems. And Bolsonaro had a very bad uh, assessed government, but he, he had a very big uh, uh, part of the votes. Uh, we don't know exactly why, how he did it. He, he, he well, he improved the situation near the election, the economic situation was improving the months before the election. That's part of the explanation. But there is another part of the explanation which is not very clear. Uh, can it be ideology, uh, a rightist ideology? Maybe yes. Uh, I would say a new kind of right, like a Trumpist uh, right, 
And uh, has this to do with uh, the old military regime? Uh, yes, but in the in the heads of Bolsonaro and, and his friends, not in the big picture of the electorate. Thanks. So, I mean, obviously the Chilean situation is a little bit different. The power of the student movement is important here, but still there is this question of generational change. I think generation is important. Uh, we, we lived it with the student protests in 2011. There was a very big... First, we had the high school students that I was mentioning, the Penguin Revolution. But then the Penguins became university students and they kept, you know, bothering the authorities. And they mobilized very much in 2011. And uh, they became very important leaders. And, some of, and one of them became president. Some of them became uh, Congress members. Um, and now many are in government. And these student leaders uh, represent, in a way, a, a generation. But I think one should not uh, exaggerate the generational argument. This was very visible and very clear. My students, I, I, I started working at the University of Chile, which is a public university and one of the most mobilized. Uh, and so when there were curfews now in, 20, 20, in 2019, I was very scared for my students because I belong to a generation that lived the dictatorship. And if there was a curfew, you went home. You didn't go to the street because you, you could be killed. But these this, uh, students did not, were not afraid. They went out and they marched. And I was calling um, my stu my, my, the, 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 the student union all the time to see how they were doing. And many were injured, actually. Many of my students were injured in the protests uh, because they had never lived something like this. And, uh, and, and the police acted as, as they have always acted in Chile in a very repressive way. There were very serious human rights violations. There over 30 people died in the outburst in 2019. And there were 400 people who lost their eyes. You probably know this, there were, there were 400 injured because the police, the anti-riot police did not shoot the feet, they, shoot, they shot the eyes and they left blind 400, uh, 400 people. And, um, and there were other, other very serious human rights violations in the, in the outburst, but these students were not afraid as, as older, older people would have been. And I think that's part of, of what you see in this generational shift. I think um, there is a political difference perhaps in the way this new generation that, as I said, comes from the social movement and pa passed to institutions through Congress and also built political parties, these are new political parties, which I think partly are doing, did well in the last elections. In the, it is called Ample Front, which has small political parties that come from the student movement. And they did well, I think, partly because they're seen as outsiders, they're seen as newcomers to politics. Um, and so and they do have, I think, a more participatory perspective of politics because this uh, older center-left political parties became used to power, to holding power, and lost their roots to, to the basis. But at the same time, they're not extremely popular. They're, you know, small groups of students, uh, highly educated. They're not grassroots, really big uh, parties. As, 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 uh, they're not workers' parties or anything like that. So I think what they are is uh, they have these differences. They also have, I think, many similarities with the older center-left in, in pro political programs regarding uh, the role of the state in the economy, the model of development, and many other substantive things. I think they think very similarly. But I think there is a, a, a thing about forms of doing politics that is a little different. But also, they're, 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 they're mobilized. And we don't see so much the young people who are not mobilized. 
And I think we saw that in this, um, in this last plebiscite, which was the first time we had a mandatory vote with the automatic uh, registry. When we had mandatory vote in Chile until 2012, uh, the registry was not mandatory. So the young people didn't register. So we, that's why we had lower and lower voter turnout, uh, even if it was mandatory, because people didn't register in order not to be forced to vote. But now registry is automatic. You, you are 18 and you automatically pass to the registry. And this time they were forced to vote. And these young people who were forced to vote voted against the proposal. So if these young mobilized left-wingers had, had been the, the main voters, probably the, the proposal would have, would have been approved. If we did not have mandatory vote in the exit plebiscite, most probably the proposal would have been approved because the vote for the new constitution was the same number of votes as the vote for Boric. But this 4.7 people injected into the system by the mandatory vote voted against. So this old saying that the, yeah, the poorer and the, and the less educated voted for the left is not valid anymore. The, the right in Chile never wanted mandatory vote because they thought the poor were going to vote for the left. Now we're seeing that the poor vote for the right or at least against the proposal. At, at least it's a, it's, a, it's a punishment vote. Thank you very much. Well, I'm gonna turn now to our audience. Um, I think I'll, I'll direct questions to one or another of our speakers because it would be nice to get through a number of different questions. Um, when I call you, can you wait for the microphone and just say who you are and where you're from from our collective audience? So this uh, woman here with the white top on. Hello. My name is Veronica, I'm from Chile. I'm a student here in LSE. And I wanted to ask you that we have this, this crisis, this participation crisis in Latin America. People not believing in institutions, people not believing in justice, people not believing in politicians. And that can be dangerous because people can start not believing in democracy anymore. If their politicians don't solve their problems, they like common day problems. So I would like to ask you, what do you think about getting a deeper democracy in Latin America? For example, installing like a completely open democracy like in Switzerland, when people can vote for uh, laws, when people can propose uh, a law and they can vote like in different scales. Do you think that that could be useful for this new generation that always want the voice to be heard and they use social media or millennials use the, the riots to make their voice heard? So what do you think about these kind of models in Latin America that could be useful or not to give a deep in democracy or deep participation? Okay, why don't you take that one? Okay, thank you, Erika. Um, I, think, I think that democratic innovations are worth exploring. We've seen successful uh, uh, things done in other places, but I think we still have a very big problem, which is the concentration of power and uh, the concentration of power to defend the concentration of wealth. And as long as we cannot address that issue, uh, it's dangerous to have democratic innovations that are a mockery of participation. So I think uh, it's very dangerous to ask the people when you're not going to take into account what the people tell you. And we've, we've done a little bit of that, I think, in the participatory process in the, for instance, Bachelet attempt to make a new constitution in, in, with the... I participated very enthusiastically in all the deliberations, but I still think it's tricky when you have participation and not real power. But uh, I think, uh, to, I think w the, the, one of the big problems we have in Chile is that people voted and voted and nothing happened. And only when people went to the streets, something happened. So you need to show that politics means something. And that requires politicians to be responsible. I think what's going on, what we're seeing today 
is the irresponsibility of our political elites. It's not that the people are crazy and don't believe in parties. It's that parties deserve that discredit. The, our political elites are not handling the outbursts, are doing like nothing happened today. So I think uh, we, need, we need the people to force politicians to become responsible. I think in that sense, the social outbursts gave, a, in a way, even with all its costs in human lives and in, I mean, many, many ways, it had a positive um, uh, hope that people can make politicians accountable and create change. But that door closed and now we're seeing a backlash. So I, I don't know how, how politics can become better. Okay, I'm going to take a, a question from the online audience, um, perhaps for you, Professor Singer. So James Chiriyankandath um, from the Institute of Commonwealth Studies at the University of London asks, how stable and sustainable are the two broad coalitions you mentioned, the democratic one behind Lula and the authoritarian one behind Bolsonaro? Uh, very good question, James. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, I think that uh, the Bolsonaro uh, coalition is more or less stable. Uh, there is a problem here uh, is, to, is to know, is to, is to understand if Bolsonaro is going to stay as an important leadership or not. This is, is, uh, is being very highly discussed here nowadays in Brazil. Because uh, it would be uh, a new experience that's not that's not uh, traditional in Brazil. And the, the tradition should be that uh, a, leader, a, a leader like him would simply disappear after being defeated as he was. Because I, I stressed in my exposition that he had a large number of votes, but he was defeated. He was the first president who couldn't get re-election after redemocratization. So it was a big defeat. The margin was straight, but it was a big defeat for him and for the right. That's very important to say. Um, but at the same time, I, I feel, I'm not sure about it. I'm trying to formulate some things about it, but it just happened. I think that this election showed that there is something new in Brazil happening the, these days. And this new thing has to do with a new kind of politics that is being uh, exercised in a Trumpist way of, of life, let's say. Uh, and uh, I think there are new behaviors in Brazil, new feelings, uh, new ideas, uh, rightist ideas, uh, that uh, in some ways uh, got hearts and minds in the population. That's, that's new. So I, my feeling, my intuition is that Bolsonaro is going to stay. I don't know how strong he's going to stay. He has a, a characteristic that he doesn't organize parties. He tried to organize one. He failed during government. And now he kind of occupied another party, which was a very small party. And now it's a big one because of him. And I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Because the tradition in Brazil is that the parties uh, go, all the parties goes to government, and including his party. This is very confusing for a foreign audience, but that is what like uh, things are in Brazil. Uh, in what respects to the democratic coalition? This is uh, uh, one of the, 
the questions most important and difficult to, to answer. I think it's impossible to answer now because this coalition is, like Claudia said, a coalition of, of uh, former opponents, completely opponents. Uh, uh, the parties were the rivals during uh, 20 years, and now they are together. Um, and uh, I, I would say that this is this. They are going to form government and they are going to start governing. But I don't know if the uh, the the, the contradictions that are within this front that are they are going to begin to show up now because they will have to decide the economic policy. If they they are they are going to be uh, dodged. I think that Lula is uh, very good in that. Very, very good. So I think he will try and he has ways to do it. But at the same time, the material conditions and the objective conditions are very, very hard from my point of view. So I, I wouldn't say now that it's possible to answer really if this is uh, about the stability of those coalitions. We will have to see. Thank you. So I'll take um, a couple of questions from the audience here in the room. Um, we have this woman here with the black, yep, you. <laughs> you have to put your hand up again, so, yeah. Thank you. Well, first of all, my name is Maria. I'm a LLM student here at King's College and I come from the same, well, region of Lula. So just a quick info because it's very symbolic. I mean, seeing who he is and what he achieved as a person from the harried interland of Brazil. So, um, one thing that concerns me the most is we've experienced in Brazil this very specific uh, circumstance in which I don't think that people are just discrediting politics or political alliances, but they are making very strong points about things that are untrue. So, for example, we see a lot of information on social media uh, with, well, one of them showed a picture of Lady Gaga. Uh, involved in a plot twist for, well, the far right keeps coming up with this fake news and misinformation, which is something that's very um, worrisome because we see people being very um, uh, emphatic and very, well, strongly believing things that they think that they are like perceived in poli as political views, but they are not based on truth. So, I would like to hear uh, your thoughts, Mr. Singer. Um, do you think that it's something related to the fact that we don't, we, we as Brazilians, not necessarily addressed the dictatorship period? Uh, for example, in Chile, I know that you have the Museum of Human Rights and Memory, which is something very symbolic. Uh, I was there and I was very like emotionally, emotionally moved. And I know that Brazil keeps trying to sort of push this conversation aside. Do you think that it has, something to do about the the lack and the absence of proper uh, addressing of the dictator, dictatorship period? Or is it something more focused about the way the social media behavior and well, the way that Trumpism behaves as well? Okay, so Professor Singer. Uh, thank you very much for the observation, Maria. I think that it has to do with the fact that uh, the right has, uh, uh, kidnapped the feeling that politics is uh, empty. It has no way. It's uh, something that you you don't uh, you don't need for anything. 
uh, I, I think that this kind of manifestation happened in Brazil in 2013. Uh, it began as a left movement, very respectable, but it was kind of kidnapped by the right in this, uh, in this uh, sense that politics is bad. And it is a kind of, uh, there is a kind of say here, I don't know if, if it's comprehensible, uh, in English, but que se vayan todos in, 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 in Spanish, that everybody goes, goes out, all of them, all, all of the politicians. But nowadays, that, that we have this new kind of right that has kidnapped the, uh, this, this feeling, I think that situation changed completely. Uh, the turnout uh, vo uh, was, uh, was higher in, in the second round for the first time in Brazil. Uh, we are very politicized at this moment because uh, I never saw Brazil so polarized and so divided in my whole life and in the in recent history before my life. I, I think that this is a complete new situation. I never heard about families being split by politics and now it's very common here, very common. You are Bolsonaro or you are Lula, you are yellow or you are uh, red, this is completely new in Brazil. So um, in this very special situation that we are living, which is a very difficult situation, I would say there, there is a subproduct, which is good. We are more politicized at this moment, but at the same time, I would say that this, this hard feeling that politics is nothing, was kidnapped by the right and it's being used by the right in this autocratic project. That's why this autocratic project has strength because it's it, in, in other ways, they're saying it's better to have an authoritarian regime, but they don't want to make a coup. They, want to, they don't want to make a traditional coup. They want to win elections. That's the new thing. I think Zevorsky showed that it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, a different kind of authoritarianism that we are seeing, a, a different kind of democratic erosion that we are seeing. That's, that's my point of view. Thank you. Thanks very much. So, um, Professor Heiss, there's an online question from Sergio Marino from UNAM in Mexico, who asks, um, in Chile, what is happening with the demand for public education, which was so central to the social movements you referred to earlier? Do you think that President Boric should put that issue more firmly to the fore? Well, we have a problem in Chile with everything public, and it's, uh, it's that people associate everything public with bad. So, in, so together with asking for better uh, affordable education, we are seeing today uh, many people who, for instance, with the pension funds, are, there's a campaign saying, do you want your pension fund, like a really small part of the pension funds in the reform uh, on, on the way, to be uh, administered by a private company for profit or by a public company? Many people are saying by a private company because they associate the, probably, the private with what works well and the public with something for the poor, something that works bad. So yes, people want public education, but I think many people 
want access to private education because they can't imagine public education that works or they can't imagine a public health system like you have here in the UK. It's unimaginable. And that's a very difficult problem for the left because the right is campaigning very successfully against everything public. So, and education is very important, obviously for the president. And it, it's, it's been a very big demand, uh, but today he's focusing on tax reform and pension reform. Uh, education uh, is, very, is a very important issue, but pensions and tax uh, have priority today in, in his agenda, I think, because they, they, they address a broader uh, social issue. But uh, in general, I think the, the, the social program has to do with trying to get some kind of universalization of social services, including education uh, and also other issues like housing, and and others that I forget in this. Okay, thanks very much. So um, I think this gentleman at the back, um, I don't know whether you light green shirt or anyway. Thank you. Um, it's a question about Brazil again. I am Thomas Bustamante from the Federal University of Minas Gerais in Brazil. And my question goes to, to Singer. It's a question about responsibility and uh, the memory of the dictatorship uh, there are many people in Brazil now. I mean, all of my neighbors, people who live in my building in Belo Horizonte, they, they, these guys, who, they really want the dictatorship back. They are in the street for it. And they are, they are protesting in, the, in front of the headquarters of the army. And my sense is that we failed to render responsible or accountable the people from the military dictatorship, the torturers, the people, who, the murderers, these guys, and they are back. And they get a lot of support from the ordinary people. Um, do you have any hope that this can change? Because I don't think that without actual punishment for these people, including Bolsonaro himself, uh, and the, or the guy, uh, the, head, the head of the highway police who just wouldn't uh, instruct his, his, the policemen to, to, to remove the blocks in the road. I mean, without punishing these people, we cannot have democracy back. Do you agree with that? And is there any hope? Okay, Professor Singer, do you agree? And is there hope? <laughs> now, uh, thank you very much for the observation, Thomas. Uh, I, I think that the question is, maybe I'm completely wrong. But I think that those people who are protesting in front of the headquarters are a small amount of people if we look at the electorate. Uh, obviously, they maybe, maybe you have uh, 500, 1,000. And it, it, uh, it, it, is it important? Yes, it is, because there are, it's a minority. But it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, they make a lot of noise. And I think that you are completely right and we have to pay attention to the problem because this started, as I said, 2013, probably, I don't know, I couldn't see Thomas' face. I don't know if he's young or not, but uh, probably he remembers. Uh, we were uh, seeing uh, leftist movements and suddenly from, from nothing appeared those stream right people in the, in the streets asking for a dictatorship. So I, I, I agree, this was 10 years ago. So I agree completely that this, we should pay attention. And I agree also with Thomas that uh, in some way, 
it would be important to make uh, important process and serious process to the people who are acting against democracy. I agree with him. But I would say that uh, if the new government doesn't find a way to, uh, to show to the whole of the society that there is uh, uh, a reform program that can be made, that really can be made, that would change, will change the situation of the people. Uh, our initiatives in what respects to uh, uh, re retelling the story, I think that we should do it. And, and to process those people, I still think that we should do it, won't be successful. I think that we will fail. So uh, I think that it's very important to combine both things, because if we pay attention only to this, um, those minorities, I, I repeat, they are important. Uh, I think that we, we, are not, we are not going to see uh, the most important things. Okay, thanks. Um, Professor Hoss, I have another question for you from the online audience. Um, it's from Julio Pedeguay, uh, who asks, do you think the defeat of the Constitution is, in inverted commas, historic? in the sense that it frustrates deeper changes for a long period of time? And do you think that the left has started to assess the significance of this for their future struggles? I think the defeat of the Constitution is a big setback to the demands of uh, social change. And I think it's partly a setback that is caused by a misunderstanding. So I think many of that 62% that voted against the constitution really expected a new constitution making process to take place. And I doubt, I mean, it's not clear that that will happen. So many of those people voted, as I said, the, the right disappeared from the campaign. You didn't see any right wing politician in the campaign to reject the, the, the proposal, the constitutional proposal. The only people seen were uh, social, social actors and people from the center left that were against the proposal. Those are the people who campaign against the proposal. But now those who have the responsibility to come with a new one are not the center left, are the right, who have the key of the political system. They were the heirs of the 1980 constitution and they have been protected by a veto power all these years. They are the reason why we have not had this change all these years. So we're back to square one. And um, I think this is a setback that will be very difficult to overcome. And as I said, we are now seeing a backlash, partly because of another misunderstanding, which is that the 62% really is a support for traditional politics and a support for the right and a support for status quo, finally. Also, I think political opinion is changing, it's moving. These are not static preferences. And so now the common sense in Chile is moving more, right, more towards the right. The constitutional problem is taking a second, uh, uh, Go, not becoming so important, becoming less important. And people want to move on to recover from the pandemic, to recover jobs. We have a, a, a inflation that we haven't had since the return to democracy. So we have urgent needs and, and the institutional problems are really not the priority for people right now. But I, I think they're very important and probably this will extend the crisis and we have not a solution. We will not have a solution now and probably we will have an increased social tension in the future. Okay, thanks. 
Now, we're coming towards the end. If we're succinct, we can get in a couple of extra questions. So I just ask the questioners and the answerers to be succinct. Um, someone from over that side, I think maybe the gentleman with the white shirt. But, but please keep it tight so we can get another question in. Hello, my name is Morris. I am the MRS PhD student at LSE. And I would like, this question is kind of directed to both of them very quickly. But we notice if whether or not be pink tide or not, we've seen there are seemingly very different, sometimes very different, even opposing kind of support for this kind of left versus right. We look at the election referendum, we look at those results, we see it's almost as if it's the people who are more of a center of Chile that are the people who are supportive of the more of a center left to left. Well, in the context of Brazil, it's almost like people in the much more of a periphery in the like the, we now see the biggest vote bank of the north, the left has become the Lula's hometown, the area of the nor northeast and nor northeast. Are there something about it that makes really makes these kind of the differences between these two cases? What would you say explain these kind of differences, distinct differences, regional, geographical, and kind of which sector supports which? Thank you. Okay, that's not a small question. No. Um, but, um, <laughs> perhaps, um, yeah, if you could compensate by being <laughs> even more concise than before. Yeah, but please go ahead, Professor Singer. I wouldn't know what to say about Chile in that respect because I don't know the situation, but in Brazil, uh, if I understood well the question, uh, it has to do with this very important presence of the Northeast on the election. The Northeast was the, the real big base of Lula's victory. It's, it's, I think it's undoubt, undoubtful. And um, the question is, the Northeast is the poorest region of Brazil along with the North. Uh, but the North has uh, a different situation because there's, there's a, a different kind of economy. Uh, let's not get into that now. Uh, so I, I would say this is a regional, uh, very specific situation that was created by what I call Lulism, because Lulismo is the politics for the poor and by the poor and supported by the poor, the poor people, not the working class exactly, but the poor people, which is a little different. And I would say that uh, this, uh, uh, this connection between the poor people and the Northeast, remembering that uh, uh, most part of the working class in Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro comes from, from the Northeast. They are Northeasterns or sons or grandsons of Northeasterns. So uh, the Northeast is very important in, in that sense. Uh, now we have a new thing that is uh, Bolsonaro united the South and the center West in a very special way because now those regions are very prosperous because they are exporting commodities and um, we are having a, a new super cycle of commodities because of China. I don't know how long will it take, will it take? How long will it last? But anyway, they are prosperous and they voted massively for Bolsonaro, more or less like the Northeast voted for Lula, but the Northeast is much more populated. So we are seeing 
a kind of north-south-north uh, uh, north division in Brazil, which is new. It's new because the northeast was Lulista from the 2000s, but this Bolsonaro thing on the south and the center-west is completely new. So I would say uh, we, are, we are facing uh, uh, very new things in what respects to the regional division, the regional political division of, of Brazil. And we will have to see uh, what is going to happen because you have kind of, including kind of xenophobia reactions uh, against the Northeast. That's incredible. It's, 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 it's unexpected because Brazil hadn't this, this uh, strong thing in Brazil uh, in, in politics before. So I would say a uh, new phenomena that we are going to, to have to analyze. Okay, thanks. So very briefly, regarding the regional issue, in Chile, the, the left vote is usually concentrated in the center, in the urban areas in, in central Chile. Uh, the stronghold of the right is Araucanía, the region where the Mapuche uh, conflict takes place. But um, but the uh, electorates performed differently uh, in, in these uh, last elections, in different uh, uh, elections. I, I won't go into the details. I wanted to say something about polarization. The, the electorate does not, in, in uh, polls, does not, does not show polarization with self-identification. When you ask people, most people see themselves as centrist. Um, there is, uh, though, um, polarization in the political offer. So there's more polarization, in other words, in the political system than in the electorate. But uh, I think that has to do partly, at least, with the fact that the social pressure uh, put for the first time since the return to democracy the question of the possibility of uh, universal uh, social services. We didn't have that possibility because it, it was inconstitutional and it's still inconstitutional because uh, the constitution didn't pass. So it's unconstitutional to have redistributive policies in Chile. You, you go to the constitutional court, even if you have the votes, you cannot have a national health service like here because it's unconstitutional. But uh, when faced with the possibility that this might change, a center left, part of the center left who had a leftist rhetoric had to come out and say, you know, come out of the closet and say, no, I really don't like that. I'm scared of, you know, universal policies. And so part of the center really is moving to the right in Chile. And we have a reconfiguration of the center. Some people say there's a, the center got void. I think it has more, more to do, as I said, with the offer than with the real, uh, what is being represented. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm afraid we are a couple of minutes before closing, so I'll just um, have to start wrapping it up then. I think it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion I mean, we've heard, I think, um, that it's, you know, I think you characterise it as a bittersweet time. And that came through in both of your contributions. I mean, on the one hand, we had the idea that there's something new coming from the right. And yet, on the other hand, it's clear that there is something to the idea that there's a pink tide. So thank you both very much. Can you join me in thanking our speakers, Professor? Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.